Um, turn with me to the book of Titus, actually, the epistle of Titus. We are looking at this book as a family on Sunday morning for the last time. Uh, we are ending this powerful yet informative book, and chapter 3 is our text. Um, actually, I have verses 8 through 11, but I forgot to change that. It's actually 12 through 15, so never mind that. Uh, we're in <laughs> chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Um, what I want to do, last week we kind of ended talking about our core values. Uh, this week what I'd like to do is before we get into the text, again chapter 3 verse 12 through 15, it's Paul's final uh, instructions and farewell uh, to them. But I want to run into the text. I want to do a short overview of where we've been and then launch into and, and go to, into the farewell address of Paul, final instructions, his, his blessing to the church. Uh, that's, so that's what we'll do. So keep your Bibles open to uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 12, where we'll pick up in a little bit. But as we know, this little epistle, uh, one of the pastoral epistles, one of three pastoral epistles, uh, was written to Titus. He's a young man in the island, on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, he was left there by the apostle, as it says in chapter 1, verse 5, to set things in order. And Paul told him to set things in order, beginning with what? Leaders. Got to have leaders, got to be good leaders. We learned throughout this book on not only the, how important leadership is, but also how the gospel, the good news of Christ, his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection from the grave impacts all of our lives. Even in the very opening remarks of Titus chapter 1, verse 1, we see uh, how the gospel, the knowledge of the truth, leads or uh, accords to godliness in hope of eternal life. We also learn from chapter 1 how this gospel impacts leaders, as I mentioned, how important leaders are, the shepherds of God's people. They are to have, he, he makes a litany of character traits, they are to be, uh, to, 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 they're expected to have these character traits as they lead and shepherd God's people. They are to be singly devoted to their wives, above reproach, things like not being quick-tempered or greedy. They should be hospitable, and lovers not of money, but lover of good, self-controlled, as they, uh, as they, as they serve the church of God. And verse 9 of chapter 1 gives another important aspect of leadership. They must, verse 9, hold firm to the word of God, to be stable and to, to hold it firmly, to, to acknowledge it, to preach it, to stand on it, its authority, and not to diminish it. And they are to hold firm to the word of God and to give instruction in sound doctrine. Uh, most importantly, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that they can oppose those who uh, oppose the gospel. We learned about that as well in chapter 1. They are to be a man of integrity and character and wisdom. Wisdom, and you know the word. They need to be able to combat falsehood with the word. They need to combat those who say salvation is by grace plus works, as, they, as some have been teaching in these churches in Crete. Paul gives instructions in chapter 2, how the gospel is lived out, not in leadership this time, but in chapter 2 he talks about the gospel being lived out in the lives of the church, the men and women of the church, uh, and how they should live not only among each other, but when, they, when they're home, in their homes, they should be, he says, young men are to be uh, men who show good works. They should be, he says in chapter 2, they should have sound speech. Look at verse 8, that when they have this good work, sound speech, they can't be condemned in order that their opponents, verse 8 of chapter 2, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about them. Also in chapter 2, we learn how older women and younger women are to live. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good. Young women love their wives, love their children, love, love their husbands, love their children, so that the word of God may not be reviled. 
And then finally, bond servants in chapter 2, verse 10. How, how the gospel not lives out with men and women, but also with the slaves and bond servants in that day. Chapter 2, verse 10. Showing all good faith, it's the gospel again, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. These are examples of how people to live, very important in the book of Titus. What's also interesting and very important is Titus gives us the key to what all that looks like, or how does that happen? How does the grace of God inform and transform men, women, older men, older women, and bond servants? One of the key passages, why it's up here on the banner. Chapter 2, verse 11. Very important. If you don't, you know, if you don't, and it's a long verse to memorize, I get it, but you, you should know this passage or where to find it, at least in the Bible. For the grace of God has appeared. Christ has come, bringing salvation for all people. Training us, that's the gospel of grace, the Lord Jesus, grace of God, training us. It's grace that trains us to renounce, to turn away from ungodliness, worldly passions. It's the, it's the gospel that trains us, the grace of God that trains us to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present godly age, right now, here and now. Waiting, we've got the here and now, and now we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. He's come and he's coming again. Verse 14, beautiful story, a beautiful truth of the gospel. Who Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are what? Zealous for good works. It's the outcome, the evidence of the grace of God. We live a God-glorifying life by the grace of God. We do good works, which is a major theme in this book, by the grace of God. We are motivated to obedience, and that motivation for obedience is, again, the grace of God revealed in the person and the work of Jesus. We've talked about that. We are to live by grace. We are to do so that the word of God is not dishonored. We are to live by grace that our opponents, those who oppose the Christian faith, Faith are silenced because they have nothing negative to say about us. We have to live by grace so that the declaration which says God saves sinners is made visible, demonstrated in the lives of God's people. As we said before, what we do matters. Not to gain our salvation, but to show forth the evidence of the grace of God in our life. And when you and I come to realize, we come to the realization by faith that we are really, we deserve damnation and eternal separation from God because of sin and rebellion. Yet in kindness, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace has rescued us from the penalty of our sin, from the penalty of our rebellion. Simply by grace, he redeemed us from all lawlessness. When in humility we recognize that there's nothing we can do to achieve, to earn, or to merit our rescue, our redemption, our salvation is the solely, it's solely the work and the merit of Christ, then we begin to see that our good works, our good deeds, our obedience to God is not a burden, it becomes a joy, a response of the grace of God. In fact, if, if obeying God... If you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower and obeying God is burdensome to you, 1 John 5, something's wrong. We may be obeying God. We may be doing good deeds more out of fear 
guilt, then joy, and, and, and response. You need to think about that. I mean, sometimes we just got to do what we got to do. I get that. But more often than not, it should come from a heart of gratitude, of thanksgiving for the amazing, this, this wonderful, this stunning, undeserved kindness and love and mercy of God toward us in the gospel. His name is Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. And we get to chapter 3. We see that same pattern. Gospel grace, love, mercy, kindness of God leads us to gospel mission. Okay? Gospel grace, God's love and mercy in Christ leads us to gospel mission. So how do we live in a culture without being tainted and destroyed by that culture? How do we live in the world but not of the world? How how do we show ourselves devoted to Christ, set apart for His glory without being become arrogant and selfish and prideful? Looking to, as I like to say, to escape the world. I, want, I, don't want to be, no, I don't want nothing to do with those people. We escape the world around us. Or being compromised by the world and just emulating the world. It's sinful practices. How do we not escape the world? How do we not emulate the world? But how do we engage the world around us with the cause of the gospel? Family, it's done by, again by the grace of God. Titus chapter 3 verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. Slaves, chained slaves, all of us, to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't earn it. We didn't reach up and grab him. He reached down and snatched us. He saved us, not because of works, merit, deeds you've done in any righteousness, but according to his own, his own mercy. Not his mercy, his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, it's the work of the, of, of the cleansing work of Jesus, and renewal who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, of whom he poured out on us, Richly, through Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, so that, being justified by His grace, we, be, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified, forgiven, established relationship with God who now promises eternal life. That's the hope. It doesn't end there. Verse 8. This saying is trustworthy with everything I just said. I want you to assist on these things. That's with confidence. So that those who have believed, that's you and me and all those in Crete who are followers of Christ, for those who have believed in God may be what? Careful to devote themselves to good works. Now the context we know in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 is the missio dei, is the mission of God. It's the triune God sending his church in the world on mission to demonstrate the gospel with good deeds and declare the gospel of, of Christ. Turn, repent, and believe upon Jesus. Now let me say this before we jump into our text. Remember this, and and I hope this resonates with you. At the end of the day, we have a mission statement, and I'm glad we do. We're going to talk about that. But at the end of the day, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. 
It's not like we are owners of the gospel. The gospel owns us. It's not that we are, uh, we're not the possessors of the gospel. We are the possession of the gospel. Sometimes we make that wrong switch as if we are something when he is all it. He's the sustainer, redeemer, proclaimer. And sometimes that little shift, he owns us. We don't own him. He is on mission, and he's using us for his mission. We ended last week with Paul's instruction to Titus, not only what they, the church, should do, but what they should avoid. Look at me, chapter 3, verse 8. They must devote themselves again to good works. They are to do that, but they are to avoid foolish debates, and when necessary, reject the self-condemned. While you're living on mission, recognizing who you were and where you were, that God saved you, devote yourself to good works, don't get into foolish debates, and reject those who just won't listen. Chapter 3, verse 8. And now as he draws this conclusion, these last few verses, Paul says, really, you know, what was it, uh, four verses, 12 through 15, just a couple of things, but just like Paul, he says so much, right, so much. So chapter 3, verse 12, conclusion, instructions, final greeting, blessings. Chapter 3, verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn, here we go again, to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith Grace be with you all. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You may be thinking, what? there ain't not much really there. There's a lot there. Three movements. The gathering of the saints, the sending of the saints, and the blessing, the final blessing of the saints. Number one. Verse 12 again. This gathering. When I send Artemis or Tychus to you, do your best to come to me. Nicopolis, I'm going to spend the winter there. Now, there's debate on where this Nicopolis is. It actually means Victory City. There could be a couple of places. I think most commentators fall on being located on the west coast of the Greek peninsula, peninsula, uh, right across from southern Italy, kind of northwest of northwest of Sicily, I was thinking. According to the text, the Greek text, Paul's not there yet. What he's saying to Titus is, I'm going to Nicopolis. You're at Crete. It would be, it would be north of Crete, obviously. And I'm going, to, I'm going there. Why don't you meet me there? I'm going to stay there for the winter. Now, it gets cold in Nicopolis. Not New York cold, but it gets cold. And he tells him, and he, it appears that he's saying, look, I'm going to send Artemis or I'm going to send... T- Tychicus, or Mr. T, I'll call him, because that name saying that a thousand times is going to drive me crazy. Mr. T, one of them are going to come to you, Titus, and he's going to relieve you. Not sure which one yet, but one of them is going to come, and I want you to get relieved, and I want you to come and visit me, Paul tells him. Now, Artemis, Greek name, he's only mentioned once in the Bible right here. We don't know much about him. Mr. 
Tychicus, we know a little about him. He, if you read the book of Acts, you'll know that Mr. T was on the third missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, starting in Acts chapter 18, where Paul went from Antioch, which if you know anything about the book of Acts, it was kind of the, the sending church. He would, they would keep, he would come back to Antioch, and they would be sent back out again. He's in Antioch. He's going out for his third missionary church to Galatia, uh, Ephesus. Uh, he stayed two years there. Then he went to Europe, Macedonia, to Greece, to Philippi, to a place called Troas. And Paul just went on his third missionary church, uh, missionary journey, planting churches and encouraging the churches that had already been planted. Okay? And what you read about, and actually the third missionary journey uh, ended in Acts 21. He lands in Jerusalem. But anyway, Tychicus is one of those guys that was with Paul during this time. And if you look at chapter 20 of the book of Acts, he was in Philippi with Paul. And Paul sends him off to Troas to meet him there when he gets there. They were trying to kill Paul. Nothing new there, right? And in Paul's final words about Mr. T in Ephesians chapter 6, he says this. He says in chapter 6, verse 21 of Ephesians, So that you also may know how I'm doing and what I'm doing, I'm sending Tychicus, Mr. T, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, he will tell you everything. Sending Mr. T, he knows what's going on, we're in ministry together, I'm going to send him, he's going to let you know everything that's going on. Ephesians chapter 6. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, as he winds down that letter to the church at Colossae, he writes this, Mr. T will tell you all about my activities. We're on mission together. He knows what's going on. He's coming to you. He's going to tell you what's going on. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister, then he adds, and a fellow slave or servant in the Lord. Then he writes this. I have sent him to you. I'm sending Tychicus to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So here we see Paul writing this letter to Titus, sending him one of two men that were with him on the Missio Dei, on the mission. Men who have been faithful, brothers, faithful to Christ, faithful for the task before them, planting churches, encouraging churches, and really just a companion of Paul on the Missio Dei. Why is he sending these men to Titus, one of these men to Titus? Yes, to relieve him so he can go to Nicopolis. But I think there's more. I think it's not only to relieve him, but so that these men can come and be a blessing and an encouragement to young Pastor Titus. And in turn, and in turn Titus will be encouraged, relieved, sent to Paul. Why? To know what's going on? Yes. But I believe, you just read the New Testament, to be an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. You know what that tells us? Gospel ministry is not this lone ranger initiative. We are not alone. We actually need each other. I mentioned last week, as part of the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. We were created in his image and likeness, and that means we are created to be in each other's lives in community just like our eternal god who is one in essence co-equal co-eternal co-existent yet distinct in three persons we are meant to be together now as i mentioned before we live in a very individualistic culture 
I read a report this week um, that claimed that the United States is one of the most individualistic cultures in the world, even pointing out that we are the least likely to actually touch one another during interpersonal interactions. I quote, Americans maintain a distance of personal space between themselves and others compared to much more a much more touched-oriented, collectivistic cultures like Latin America or Mediterranean countries. I'm Italian. We used to kiss when we saw our uncles, right? You know the deal. As such, there is, a less, there is less physical contact and touch between family, friends, and strangers. All right, we're not we're talking about handshakes, okay? We're not. Studies have revealed that touch increases social bonding and feelings of goodwills toward others, end quote. So you can only imagine the social impact that this pandemic has caused, right? If, if, if touch and presence is essential to feeling loved and supported and cared for, one can only imagine the effects. That's why we are gathering together safely, but we need to be in each other's presence. God's people are not to fall into that individualistic culture. We are to live life together. Family, we're not just... We're not just part of some religious organization, okay? The Bible calls us brothers and sisters often, often. Brothers and sisters. Think about the radical implications of being someone's brother or sister. Think about the radical implications of the commitment and obligations we have toward one another. It doesn't mean we have the same depth of relationship with each other, everyone in this room, or you know, I'm closer with my community group, per se, than some people in this room. Well, I, I live life closer with them. We pray for one another. We care for one another. But we're still part of the family. We have one father, one parent, God our Father. When you come in through these doors and you're part of King's Chapel, you don't get to choose. God chose already who your brothers and sisters will be in King's Chapel. Just like you don't get to choose who your brothers and sisters are biologically. Some of you were like, I wish I could. Well, you can't. Sorry. Paul says to Titus in chapter 1, my true child in the common faith. Now he's saying, let these men, let these brothers serve you. Let them encourage you. Let them relieve you. I want, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to come to me. I want you to meet with me in Nicopolis. I want to give you a bear hug. I want to see your face. I I can only imagine when they saw each other. Like, you know, we got FaceTime. We got all that kind of good stuff. But you're writing a letter, waiting four months to hear back. This is, you know, that when when Titus came walking down the road, and there's Paul, the joy it must have been when those two brothers met. I want to share with you, Paul. I want to share with you, Titus. All the things that God is doing in my life. I want to share with you all the things that God is doing in the island of Crete. We're family. Precious blood of Jesus binds us together. And I can hear some of you thinking, well, I don't have friendships like that. I don't have family members like that. I'm not part of that. Well, you need to be. You say, well, I don't need that. Okay, well, either you're wrong or God's wrong. I'm going with you. I can't tell you. I've been, I've been pastoring here, well, sister. Assistant uh, associate pastor in 2004, where I, Phil Taylor was here, and I was overseeing community groups. So I've been seeing overseeing community groups since 2004. Um, 
I can't, I can't even begin to tell you how many times that people were not connected with one another and they were convinced, hopefully by the, by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, got involved and six months later going, it's the best thing I ever did. No one has come back to me and say, you know, it's been six months, I still don't want to see anybody, talk to anybody, leave me alone. No one has ever done that. It takes time. It takes, it takes initiative. It takes participation. But that's the way God made us. We not only need each other to encourage one another, we need each other to exhort one another. The word exhort, to exhort and to encourage, kind of a different encouragement is, hey, come on, you could do this. Exhort is like, hey, knock that off. That's stupid, right? So there's a difference. We need to speak to each other and encourage each other and then kind of just talk to each other, you know, as the word says, in love, but in truth, right? But we also need each other to know God better. We need each other to know God better. Paul wanted to hear from Titus what God was doing so those two can hear what God is doing so they can know and praise and worship God better. Sharing ministry together, talking about what God is doing is encouraging. And and you know what it does? When we gather together and we worship the Lord, we hear what God is doing in your life, in your community, we get to see God in a different way. We get to see and know him better, more richer. C.S. Lewis in his book, Four Loves, talks about this friendships that he had, this circle of friends. And yet one of them, uh, there's three of them, one of them, uh, Charles, C.S. Lewis, and Ronald, one of them died. And when Charles died, he said, it wasn't so much that now I have more Ronald's time. He said, you know what, now that, now that Charles is dead, it's just me and Ronald. There's more time. But you know what, I lost something of Ronald. Why? I don't get to see Ronald's reaction to a specifically funny Charles joke. He says, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles has passed, I have less of Ronald. In other words, what he's saying is, I lost that peace. And then he adds this, in this friendship, in this type of friendship, what I'm talking about, in this friendship, exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition for which Each has of God, understanding of God. He says, my soul in heaven, seeing him in his or her own way, communicates. We see God in heaven, communicates that unique vision to everyone else. He says, that says an old author is why the seraphim in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, cried out, holy, holy, holy to each other. The point is that the community brings out things within each other that we would not normally see if we were not in community. And if that's true, and it is, how much more, how much more is it with our God? That we can't really know the fullness of God by ourselves. You could, you could, you could take the peace that you have, that you're bringing as you're studying the word, as you're, as you're learning about God, as you're, as you're experiencing the love and the grace of God. When you come into communion, you share that with your community. We see something that we didn't see before. And if you don't do it, that means we don't see it. And you don't see it from your perspective. You don't see it from my perspective. That's the way God designed us to be. And you say, well, I I don't need to be in church. I don't need to be part of community. Okay, that's something you made up. That's not in the Bible. That's not the way God does relationships. Paul lived in community. Jesus lived in community. You know, many times you read the New Testament, I've talked about this before too. When you see the word you, you think you, me, singular. Many times, 
King James Bible does make a differentiation between the two. Sometimes you is y'all, plural. We talked about this before. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life, singular, free from the love of money. Don't be greedy. Don't be greedy in your life. And be content with what you have. And you think, all right, so I need to be content with just what I have in order to combat the love of money. Actually, that's not what it says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what everyone has. You all, plural. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So how do we deal with the love of money? We share. We're content with what we have. That's how you combat greed. That's how you meet needs. You care, you love, you serve one another. Even as simple as Philippians chapter 4. We love this verse. I love this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And you all are thinking, I know you are because I am too. Rejoice. So I just need to put on my tape and my music on my way home and rejoice in the Lord all by myself singing praises to God. Well, that's good. You should do that. But that's not what the verse is saying. Rejoice is plural. Present, meaning it's ongoing. It's active, meaning you're doing it. It's imperative, meaning it's a command. But it's also plural. He's talking about to the church. Now, why would Paul tell the church as a whole, using a plural verb, to rejoice? Because you can't by yourself all the time. I can't. Sometimes I need help rejoicing because I just don't feel like it. But when we have brothers and sisters to pick us up, and they're rejoicing, we can rejoice with them. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul tells Titus, I'm sending you some brothers that would encourage you. Then come and encourage me. Let's do this together. Gathering of the saints, let's rejoice together. But that doesn't stop there. Verse 13. Do your best, Titus, to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they, Zenos and Apollos, lack nothing. So obviously, these men are on the island of Crete. Probably, most commentaries believe that you know, they're the ones that deliver the letter. And like Artemis, we don't know much about Zenos. He's the only time in all of the Bible he's mentioned right here. He's a lawyer. We know that about him. He's a lawyer. Probably, he's either a Jewish, he's either understands Hebrew law, or most people think, since he's a Greek, it's, it's Roman law, but he's a lawyer. Um, Apollos, though, we know him. He's the uh, Jew from Alexandria, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, 1 Corinthians says a lot about this man. We know Apollos. Acts chapter 18, verse 24 says he was an eloquent man. He was an eloquent man, competent in all the scriptures. According to 1 Corinthians, we went through that book years ago, um, he had a really fruitful ministry in Corinth, right? Real, real fruitful ministry. So it seems that they delivered this letter, that they fulfilled their assignment, and they were to now be sent off by Titus well. Paul asked Titus, do everything you do, send them on their way, equip them with everything they need, all the practical, that's what it means, the practical and necessary things that they need as they go back out on mission, on their journey. In fact, look at verse 14 with me. We see it once again. The need to be devoted to good works. I, I think Paul is saying, I'm, I'm saying it again in the general sense, but maybe it's a nudge to be generous when you send Apollos off and Zenos off, kind of in the same breath. 
Let they lack nothing and let your people learn to devote themselves to good works. Start by when you send Zenos and Apollos off. Let them know good works so as to help case of urgent need, they have urgent need. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of those, I think. And the expectation of the church was that they would join together and serve the Lord together, being sent on mission together as they provide needs for these two men to proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. This was what was expected from the church honorable and reasonable that they would send them off with everything they need. Now here's something to think about as, as we think of, of, of Apollos. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 3, we know that Apollos, according to the church, not these men, but the church, had this rivalry going between Paul and Apollos in chapter 3. Some folks in Corinth, now you know the, the, you know the church in Corinth had all kinds of issues, right? They had this issue where some referred to and they said, you know what, we like Apollos better than you, Paul. Sorry. And some are going, nope, Paul's our apostle. He planted this church. And it was a fight and a division rose. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Are you still of the flesh, Paul writes? There's jealousy and strife. Are you not of the flesh, the sinful nature, and having behaving only in a human way, there's nothing spiritual about you. For when one says, I follow Apollo, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? There's nothing spiritual about you. There was major division and dissension in the church. In fact, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll find they were getting drunk at communion. There was a young man who had his father's stepwife kissing mom, not good. But what did Paul deal with first? Division. Division, chapter 1. Let's talk about divisiveness. Some were saying, Paul, you need to be like Apollos. Apollos, you need to be like Paul. Apollos wasn't even one of Paul's disciples. He, got this, he, he came to faith through another ministry, through Aquila and Priscilla, Acts 18. And you could hear some of the saying, look, Paul, we know you labored hard for the church, but you're just not as eloquent. You don't got it together. This guy, Apollos, man, he's smart. He's eloquent. He, he, he can outdo you. How easy then, family, would it be for someone in that role who gave his life for that church, in a sense, to be trying to undermine Apollos? Everybody seems to like him. I seem to can't even carry his water bucket. I got this, this, this divisiveness, this division going on. I'll show him something, right? To have this competitive attitude toward one another, you don't see any of that. In fact, Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 3, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Both servants, slaves, through whom you believe. Okay, we get it. You've come to faith and learned the gospel. But God has assigned to each of us. I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. This lack of rivalry between these two men show forth the, 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 the heart of Paul that cares more about the missio day and the mission of God than anything else. Send them off. Give them what they need. Their brothers on the mission. Give them the spiritual encouragement, material and whatever they need, materially, food, how, whatever it is. Listen, Titus, send them off. They're faithful brothers. They're serving the Lord. They're preaching the gospel. Send them out. They're on mission. 
No divisiveness. They must be about and continue to preach the gospel. I mentioned last week, I just have it up one more time, our mission statement. We exist, the very purpose of our existence is to glorify God, how? By living on mission with Him. Making disciples, as calling people to repentance and faith through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. That means what Paul has said over and over, the New Testament talks about over and over, that our primary function is the mission of God for the glory of God. The mission of God for the glory of God. God is glorified. God is made much of. God has uh, the, the infinite value of his person, his majesty, his incalculable worth is displayed in the greatest display in the gospel. In the gospel. Chris Morgan writes for the Together for the Gospel, uh, excuse me, the Gospel Coalition. He writes this, the glory of God is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, grandeur of his perfections, of his many perfections, which he displayed in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory, his loveliness, his grandeur, his magnificence, his worth, in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has the world, Satan himself has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? Seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul would write after that, just a few verses later, speaking about the suffering of the gospel and the proclamation suffering of the gospel. He says, we do this for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, we're preaching the gospel, grace is being extended to more and more people, it may increase, he says, thanksgiving to the glory of God. The saving, redeeming, rescuing of sinners is intended to make much of God, to reveal the beauty and calculable worth and value and majesty and greatness of God. And when one comes to faith in Christ, in the cross. It's not just being thankful and grateful. It is. It's not just celebrating what God has done. It is. But it's ultimately for the glory of God. And when that becomes our primary focus, believers' primary focus, we'll be generous in the mission. We'll meet needs. But you know what else we'll be? We'll be kingdom-minded. There'll be no competitiveness. No divisiveness when you're on that mission. But because... We're hard-headed. Paul reminds them, look what it says. There's an ever process of learning. Let your people, see what he says? Let your people learn to devote themselves to good works. Learn another present imperative, a command of continuous action. Let them continually learn to do good deeds. The word learn is where we get our word discipleship. They're learners. Devotion is that word that's been used before, a pattern of life, a, a, a lifestyle, a consistent lifestyle of good works, a habit of life. It's the norm. It's, it's, the accept, it's, it's not the exception. I let your people learn, continually learn to be devoted, to, to have a habit of life, to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So I guess the question here we should ask one another is, what is the definition of fruitful? 
The American dream? Fruitfulness, I guess, it depends on context, I get that. But here in this context, the sending of the saints on the mission of God for the glory of God, the reason we were created, the infinite purpose and ultimate purpose of living, the glory of God, fruitfulness is what? Generosity. Fruitfulness is good works. Fruitfulness is when we serve one another and send people on mission for God's glory and the proclamation of the gospel. That's why good works is over and over and over mentioned over and over and over in this book. Driving home the fact that we are saved not by works, but we are saved to do good works as we live on mission for the glory of God. And it bears fruit. As it demonstrates, as we live a life full of good deeds, full of good works, by the grace of God, we are demonstrating to the world that God loves sinners. It's a witness to the world. As we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel, we're meeting needs and serving people. And you see what's going on here. There's this gathering and sending of, 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 of the people of God. And what that should teach us this morning is we're a team. We're a team. We're on Team Jesus. <laughs> we're, we're on a team. We're, we're all living on the mission of God for the glory of God. We're interdependent. We're supporting one another. Those who are sending out, some are gathering here. We're all doing the same thing, living on mission for the glory of God. Our fruitful life is a good testimony that God is saving people and the saving power of, of what he's doing. People need to, to see and our love for him, our love for others, the fruit of our lives by the saving power and the grace of God. Matthew 5 again. The salt and light of the earth, so that you, they may, with light and with salt, so that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the heart of the witness, right? This is the purpose of our team, pouring our life out to one another for the glory of God and for the mission of God. Dr. Philip Towner, this sacrificial action effectively prolongs the epiphany of God's grace, the revealing of God's grace, so that people outside the faith community might become aware of the reality of Christ among his people, end quote. So, King Chapel, any church really for that matter, we must keep learning that meeting the needs of others for the purpose of the Missio Dei is a fruitful ministry. Whether it's meeting the needs right here in our church. We've been announcing week after week we need children's church. We're going to close the class. That's what's going to happen. I'm not trying to guilt you into it. I'm just telling you the truth. We're going to close because we don't have teachers. Serving at the food pantry. We need to do that. We're doing those things toward one another. We're serving one another for the ultimate goal, for the mission and the glory of God. We serve our local gospel partners, Capital City Rescue Mission, Alpha Pregnancy. We, 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 we do good toward others for the ultimate goal of the mission and the glory of God. We give financial support and prayer support for our global partners. We're doing good with the ultimate purpose of the mission and the glory of God. We need to be in the habit of giving. We need the habit of loving. We need the habit of letting people see our good deeds, our love, by the grace of God as brothers and sisters on the mission. Always remembering, always remembering, we're not doing good to gain in any meritorious, meritorious ways any kind of favor of God. We're not doing it to earn the favor of God. We're not doing it to earn the forgiveness of God. We're not doing it to earn the love and mercy of God or the acceptance or approval of God. We already have that in Christ and in the gospel. We're doing good because of the love, mercy, acceptance, forgiveness, and the grace of God. Very important. The gathering of the saints, the sending of the saints, and finally... 
verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Family love binds us together. Love is the glue that binds us. And of course, it is first the love of God. First John tells us that God is love. Love is not God. God is love, very different. And that love, when it is experienced by the grace of God, through faith, works in us and works through us towards others. If uh, Paul opens up the letter with grace to you. As you read this letter, I want the grace of God to be with you. As you read this letter among one another, as you understand what I'm trying to write, write to you, grace be to you. And now at the end of the letter, what does he say? Grace be with you as you go. To you as you read, with you as you go. And look what he says. Look what he says about the love of God. He says it's a a familial love. It's a family love. At the very end, greet those who love us in the faith. Now we can say that God loves everyone. That's true. But not the same way. John tells us that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a real sense in which God's love is seen and manifested to the whole world. Pouring blessing on believers and non-believers. Even the invitation, his patience, his kindness is to the whole world showing forth his love. However, however, every believer who's a follower of Christ, every believer who's a follower of Christ knows that when they came face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, when they experience for themselves the grace of Christ, we know unquestionably we did not save ourselves. Our faith is not because we're smarter, more wiser, prettier, more handsome than those who don't believe. We know that it's by grace alone, by no merit of our own, that God himself opened our heart, God himself opened our eyes and caused us to see the beauty of the gospel, the truth of Christ, the majesty, the value, and the, and the, and the, the glory of Christ. And that we know that we have been in Christ been giving love, been given love that's everlasting. It's a dying love. It, it, it's, it's a love, Paul says in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy because of his great love, great love which he loved us. Dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive with Christ and by grace you've been saved. This is God's electing love. This is God's regenerating love. This is God's redeeming love. This is God's adoptive love. This is God's divine love. His glorifying love. And although there's a love that that needs to be given to all people, even God exhibits that. Paul says here, greet those in love with those who love us in the faith, the common faith, the bond that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ, expressed in the gospel, seen in the gospel, treasured in the gospel that binds us together. Grace and love. Two pillars for the life of the church. He pronounces his benediction. Grace be with you all. Again, the word you is plural. Paul starts out, chapter 1. Grace be with you that is known and received through the Son. Chapter 1, verse 4. It's made its 
historical appearance, this grace of God appeared in the coming of Christ, chapter 2, verse 11. It trains us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godly lives, chapter 2, verse 12. This grace that is historical in Christ who will come and return, chapter 2, verse 13. It was the grace that has been given to us that justifies us, declares us righteous with the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's grace in chapter 3, verse 7. You all have received this grace. It is by this grace that you will live a life. It is by this grace you will live on the mission of God. And let me end with this last illustration. If there's anyone in the universe at this time that understood the need for the grace of God and to see that same grace push him and propel him into the mission of God by that same grace, it is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew in chapter 3, verse 3, what it says here. He knew firsthand what it means to be foolish, disobedience, hated, hating one another, passions and pleasures that are driving him. He knew that. He was a militant. He had passions and pleasures to murder Christians, to put them in jail. He was a militant man who casted his vote for the death of believers. But when he came face to face, but when he came face to face to the appearance of grace... When the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul, everything changed. He went from trying to work real hard, to work real hard, to make a, this right relationship with God happen, to get into a right relationship through, through study and, and the law, until finally he came resting in the love and the grace of God, in the perfect, meritorious work of Christ. He said in Philippians 3, listen, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, man. I'm the man, born, born a Hebrew, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee, zeal, persecutor of the church, righteousness, man under the law. I was blameless, but I count that. I, I edited it all up, and I count that what? Surpassing a, a loss, he says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's all Paul needed to know. Paul came face to face with the grace of God in the person of the work of Jesus Christ, and now everything changed. Even in Romans 7, he talks about fighting sin. He ends with the gospel. He says, the gospel saved me. I met Jesus. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. And now that same grace, that same gospel is sending me out in my holiness pursuit and the pursuit of saving sinners. In the end, he was moved by the love and grace of God to give himself to the proclamation of the gospel. All of this was due to the mercy and grace of God. I'm going to invite the band up as we get ready to respond. And I want to read to you again, just, just soak this in, okay, family? Chapter 3, just soak this in. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, washing and regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the promise, the hope of eternal life. It's trustworthy. 
I insist you say these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Only, only by God's grace can a church live on mission. Only, only by God's grace can a church live separate, set apart for God. Only by God's grace. That we can be equipped we could stand in the face of opposition in a culture that is anti-God. It's only by grace that we could stand on the truth, love people, demonstrate good deeds to them that comes forth from a heart filled with the truth of the gospel, the work of Jesus on your behalf. It is God's amazing grace alone that will sustain us. And let me tell you, it is God's mercy and God's grace is all we need. Let us pray. Father, as we draw to a conclusion of this letter you have blessed us with through your servant Paul and Titus 2,000 years ago. Oh, how applicable it is today. Help us to be leaders, those who serve the church as leadership, to be men of integrity as the pastors look to serve you. Father, help us all, young and old, men and women, be filled with the gospel of grace so that our lives will be a reflection of the mercy and grace you, you have poured out on us. And Father, help us to live on mission. Help us to recognize where we were, what we were, and how you transformed all that through the work of the gospel and the power of your spirit. Help us to see the truth and help us to be moved on mission, demonstrating your grace in how we live, through generosity and good deeds, loving people. But Lord, let us not stop there. Let us open our mouths so that we can declare the good news of Christ appearing. He came. He lived that perfect life we could never live. He died the death we should have died. Rose three days from the grave. And now he's calling everyone everywhere to repent, to turn, and to trust, to rest, to rely, and to run to him for salvation. Help us, Lord, to keep singularly minded on your glory and your mission, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.